When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 362nd episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a comedy legend. He is a three-time Golden Globe-nominated actor, a four-time Emmy-winning writer and award show MC, a recipient of a special Tony Award, and 2007's Mark Twain Prize for American Humor honoree. He has also hosted the Grammys three times and the Oscars nine times, the latter figure more than anyone else in history, save for Bob Hope. All of which is why, for good reason, he was given by David Letterman the same nickname as one of his heroes, Sammy Davis Jr., Mr. Show Business, Billy Crystal. Over the course of our conversation, the 72-year-old and I discussed how a young Long Island husband and father who performed stand-up on evenings and weekends wound up out in Hollywood making his name on ABC's primetime sitcom Soap from 1977 through 1981, and then back in New York on NBC's Saturday Night Live from 1984 through 1985. How, even before any of that, a 1976 guest spot on All in the Family led to a relationship with one Rob Reiner, who would later direct him in three movies, 1984's This is Spinal Tap, 1987's The Princess Bride, and most famously, 1989's When Harry Met Sally, how that film in turn led to Oscar hosting and movie stardom from 1991's City Slickers to 1999's Analyze This to 2001's Monsters, Inc. to, most recently, a wonderful character turn as a grieving alcoholic dermatologist who befriends a struggling stand-up comic in the indie dramedy Standing Up, Falling Down, for which he himself is now the recipient of Oscar buzz, plus much more. And so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Billy, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Great to have you and congrats on the new movie. Oh, thanks. Uh, well, on this podcast, we always just begin with a couple of basics that, uh, you know, just set the scene a little bit. So if you can share where you were born and raised and what your folks did for a living. I was born in New York City, Doctor's Hospital, March 14th, 19 bum, 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 bum. Um, <laughs> 1948. My, uh, my father was in the music business. He was a, a manager of a legendary uh, record store in, in, uh, in New York on 42nd Street um, between Lexington and 3rd called the Commodore Music Shop. And uh, it uh, then, uh, with he and my and his brother-in-law, my uncle uh, started a my uncle started this great jazz label called the Commodore Jazz Label, which produced all these legendary records, um, most notably Strange Fruit, Billie Holiday, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and on and on that. So my dad managed the store and then produced his own jazz concerts um, from nineteen. 19- like 49 until he unfortunately died in 63. And he was sort of a pioneer in jazz in New York at the time. 
a lot of musicians who some of them are still alive who I keep in touch with refer to him as the branch Ricky of jazz because he he was um, uh, always uh, integrating bands playing um, African American players with white players when it wasn't really being done a lot and broke down a lot of barriers of that and and um, they loved him for it and um, that's who that's who he was um, professionally my mom was um, uh, at one point, a budding uh, performer herself, uh, my mom, Helen, was actually the voice of Minnie Mouse in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day parades. She would sit in a float as we would come down Fifth Avenue and sing whatever Minnie's popular song at the time was. Uh, one that uh, there is uh, a recording of uh, is I'm Forever Blowing Bubbles. But my mom was a hero to all of us when when uh, we lost my dad um, when he was only 54 and I was the youngest uh, of three I was 15 at the time with two older brothers and my mom made sure that we all graduated from college and um, and that was uh, their goal together and she made that happen so she's always been an inspiration as a parent yeah and just you know for people who are not yet familiar with 700 Sundays I mean the reason for that show, which you got a special Tony for, and it just uh, touched a lot of people, was that by your calculation, that's the number of, your, I guess your father was very busy at work, but that was your day with him, right? So the one day together was Sundays. And um, there was always a, because um, he worked on the weekends doing the, the jazz concerts and we wouldn't get in till three, four in the morning. And during the week he was at the store. So the one day we got to, you know, hang and do stuff um, as a family was Sundays. So sadly, that was, you know, when I calculated that, I said, boy, it's about 700 Sundays. And that became the title for the for the show, which was the th really one of the thrills of a lifetime was to be able to take all the the. the all the the highlights and the the joys and also the sad sadness of of um of those times and and post his death um and and basically turn it into something uh that meant a lot to uh audiences and definitely to me every night to be able to unburden myself and 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 make it relatable because everybody you know it's that's what that's what how life works there comes a point when you have to say goodbye to your parents and you never know when that's going to be. And, um, but it is, that's what happens and, and on and on and on. So to address the grief of that and the confusion of it as the 15 year old, and then again, as the 53 year old realizing, oh my God, I'm 50 something years old and I'm an orphan. There's that phenomenon that you think, oh, well, I'm 50, but you still need them. You know, you're still not tethered to the earth in quite the same way, no matter how old you are. And there's unsaid things and 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 feelings that you didn't get a chance to to share with them. And moments, definitely um, family moments of, you know, grandchildren they didn't get to see or wives they didn't get to know. And and um, your growth is into a man uh, not witnessed. So to put all of that into a theatrical uh, play was a was really a, a great satisfying experience for me, and I think you know it's interesting because it seems like he sort of planted the seeds of comedy in your life with comedy albums that I guess he got from the store and brought home. And I did hear or read that uh, he did see you once sort of do 
uh, performance of comedy at, I guess, at school or something you did when maybe shortly before he died. But when he died, I wonder if you feel that comedy changed from being an interest to almost a sense of responsibility at home, because as you mentioned, you're the last of the three kids who was still living with your mother. And I, you know, this is not a, a completely unique situation, but there's sort of a, 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 sometimes a feeling on the part of the kid that it's your job to sort of make her happy or, you know, try to salvage things, right? Yeah, Did that was, that? I mean, oh yeah, for sure. But it, it was not a job. It was just who I was and, and, and what we both needed. So, you know, it was, um, that was 1963, but prior to that, you know, he was the guy who let us stay up late to watch Ernie Kovacs and let us stay up late um, to watch uh, Jack Parr when Jonathan Winters would be on. And he pointed out, watch Laurel and Hardy, not the Three Stooges. Um, watch the timing, watch the subtlety. Um, look look at Buster Keaton. You know, he was always um, doing that. And then, and then um, that became a big thing and, and, and for us. And then growing up, uh, pointing out, you know, we had destination television then. You know, you didn't you didn't watch shows on your phone. You know, you 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 did stuff as a family, and you didn't have a remote. You had to like, if you wanted to change a channel, you had to get up and say, "Save my seat, go change the <laughs> channel and come back." So in the early days of the fifties, you know, when I was starting to be able to watch stuff, there was Sid Caesar, there was Bilko. There was, you know, there was these great Jackie Gleason. There was the Honeymooners. There was all of these incredibly funny men and women on television. I mean, I, you know, I, I still love SNL and, and having been part of it, um, you know, we, I think we had a cast of eight or nine. The original cast was less. Now there's like 20 in the cast. And I look at show of shows and it was four people. Mm-hmm. And with guests, you know, guests to fill out sketches. But it was it was Carl and Imogene and Howard and Sid. And that's it. Yeah. And it was and it was magical to me. And then, you know, then came uh, the, the albums and the 2000 year old man, Nicholson May live on Broadway, Nicholson May improvising the music. Jonathan Winters seemed to have an album out every month. Then there were the, the party records you weren't supposed to listen to, like Red Fox. You know, I was walking. I was walking in the park, and uh, it was dark, and I stepped on a guy's back, and the chick said, "Thank you." I remember these jokes, and and so you know that, that's you know you you start to develop taste, and you start to develop comedy instincts, which I think I I had even as a kid. I think of stuff that I improvised in school shows with the other kids, you know, dressed in funny costumes, looking at me, going, "What is he talking about?" And, and I had the ability to be up in front of people, which I think started in my living room with my incredibly wonderful relatives, mostly uh, Russian and, um, uh, and your, uh, the aunts and uncles and the, the smell of, of the cigars and the schnapps. And once the Seder was over, the show would start. And, um, <laughs> and my brothers and I couldn't wait to, to, to perform for them because we always had a full house. So it does seem like one decision that I, I, you know, reading about your life, I was curious about is you go off to college, graduate from college. Now you're going to go, I guess, to NYU for a BFA in, in film. 
I know you're, you know, it's a cool time to be there. Scorsese is one of your teachers. You got a lot of other up and coming people there. But at that point, are you thinking, because your your focus was on directing. Are you thinking I want to direct as opposed to be a stand up, or what was that about? Well, first of all, I, I, when I graduated high school in '65, I went away to one year in West Virginia to a school called Marshall University, and I, I, I was I was still hurting. I, I, it wasn't it wasn't a good time for me, and it was a really good school, and I was hoping to play baseball there, and 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 then I it just didn't work out, and I came back and I enrolled at a junior college on Long Island called Nassau Community College in Garden City, Long Island, and I had one elective, and I took acting one hundred and one, and that was it. I had a great teacher named George Oliver really good classmates, very talented kids. And I, and I never looked back. I, I just started doing stuff and I, and I, and I directed a, a production of the fantastics and played the old actor in it. And I would, that was it. I was, so I did two years there and, and it was a fantastic theater program. I mean, this little junior college I would put up against any major school, including Northwestern, and any. It was so good, with great professors and professional actors coming in, and and then I, I, I applied to NYU, and it was it had not yet been tished. It was just the School of the Arts, <laughs> and they only took fifty students. There was only fifty students in the whole school of the arts. And I applied, I applied as a director in a directing program and somehow I got in and I didn't, I, I didn't have a film. I did. I don't, I'm still not sure how I got in. <laughs> and, um, Marty Scorsese was one of the professors, um, uh, in film production. And we'd make these little movies on, uh, cameras from uh, WPIX channel 11, which were these uh, news cameras with the, with the uh, turret lenses uh, three lenses on one camera, and we would make these films. I really had no idea what I was doing, and then you had to edit them on this, you know, it's very primitive editing systems that were called moviolas with these these little screens, and the, the film was on one reel, and the sound was on another reel, and then you had these white gloves that you had, to, and, and you'd run it, and then you had these breaks, and you'd stop, and if you want to make an edit, and use this grease pencil, find the, the frame, do that, do that, make the cut, all with Marty Scorsese breathing rather heavily behind him. <laughs> and he would, and he was, even then, he was, he was a graduate student. And he was so, so fascinated by film and so, so, he was just amazing in, in his intensity. He would stand behind you. What did you do that shot? Why, I don't understand what you do that shot. Howard Hawks would always shoot a wide shot first. And then, you know, if you need a dolly, go to the, go to the, the supermarket and get one of the carts. And then you get in that and you make it, then you make it. And one time he spoke so quickly, he disappeared into the future. He just, he just, there was smoke and he was gone. And he popped back later. His hair was nuts. You know, you know I, I, I finally won an Oscar. I finally won an Oscar. And um, so... And, and it was it was in the classes there was um, uh, you know Oliver Stone had been there and with the Christopher Guest Michael McKean were in the acting program so we all sort of were able to nod at each other and then eventually work together um, mm -hmm. but yeah that was that time and I always thought about being behind the camera I used to make little home movies with with the R eight millimeter camera and so on and so forth and um, and so the, but that's what I was drawn to but I was always 
thinking, well, I'm, 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 I don't know. Am I a stand-up? Am I a, am I an actor? Am I a, and I was doing a lot of musicals at, at, at mm -hmm. Nassau Community College. Uh, we formed our own summer stock company. That's where I got my equity card. It was really cool, Scott. It was, NASA is, it was an old uh, Air Force base, right? So, and right, in, right near it, a place called Roosevelt Field is where Lindbergh took off to fly to, to Paris. Yeah. So we had these hangars, these big hangars that, that housed the planes. So we had a visionary head of the theater department named Wes Jensby. And Wes said, you know, we have such a talented group of people and they come through here in just a year or two years. We should form our own equity company and we'll call it the Alumni Theater Group and we'll do plays. But what we'll do is I'll get one of the I'll get the school to give me one of the, the hangars and we'll transform it into an indoor outdoor theater. And those huge doors, after we built the proscenium inside, we would do musicals with a 20 piece orchestra, open the doors and we get. 2,500 to 3,000 people a night to, to watch these musicals. And it was, it was absolutely fantastic. And that, that's, that's really, you know, I, I think I have not stopped working on my craft since uh, 1966 when I started at NASA. Wow. So, and that's maybe where, that's the root of the musical chops that people have mostly seen and, you know, when you're hosting things, but that's, you know, you're very capable uh, singer and dancer and all of that. So, I mean, that's interesting that that's where that may have come from. And so um, now you graduate and I guess pretty quickly got married and started having kids very young. And uh, which I, I, I guess meant that you were going to have to have a day job, no matter what passionate pursuits you, you wanted to do elsewhere. And so how did it work that I guess you're doing improv maybe even before stand-up and it's you and initially a group of guys uh how talk about that leading to what i think was probably one of the most pivotal meetings of your life which would be jack rollins yes yes i formed a, a group with my two they were my two closest friends from nassau dave hawthorne and al finelli and we called ourselves three's company we, we originally called ourselves ourselves we the people which was a really good name but um, somebody else had it and we just grabbed Three's Company and boom, there's another show and people would come to see us expecting to see John Ritter. And um, <laughs> we we did um, improvs and, and toured all the time in a circuit that was our vaudeville. It was called the Coffee House Circuit. So what you would do, and we had a pretty good act, we, you know, sketches and then plays for improv and so on and so forth. And you would go to different universities. There was a, a whole circuit. And if you did a one-nighter, that was one thing. But there was also these three-day gigs where you'd actually stay in a dorm, that they would provide you a space in the dorm, and you would perform like two or three shows a day in a makeshift coffee house, um, or what Marty Mull used to call the cafetorium. <laughs> and and so that was, and then so we would travel all over, uh, up in New York State and in Pennsylvania and down into, and the Carolinas and so on and so forth, and and that's you know what we were doing, and we were having a great time, but we weren't getting anywhere. So um, I got married in 1970, and we have our first baby in '73. So around that time, I'm getting itchy, and I feel my comedy clock ticking, going, "What am I doing? We're not getting anywhere." 
I love these guys, but it's really lonely at the middle. So what am I doing? You know, and we were performing then at a place called Catch a Rising Star. There were two great comedy clubs in Manhattan, then the Improv, of course, on 44th Street and Catch, which was on the, on the Upper East Side and 77th Street. And we would perform there, perform there, perform there. And um, in the middle of all of this, we have a baby, Jenny. And so I'm feeding her. I was the house husband. We, Janice and I were way ahead of our time. There came a point where my darling wife of over 50 years now comes to a point where she says, and I was substitute teaching and, and, and working with the guys at night and so on and so forth. But I was substitute teaching in the school that I went to. <laughs> the junior high that I went to was really kind of interesting. <laughs> being in a being in a teacher's dining room, you know, which I you always thought was this like you know Playboy Club, right? <laughs> and having to call my teachers by their first names that that was really hard. I it's still, Mr. Graf, could you pass the salt? Ed, I'm Ed. No, no, you're always Mr. Graf. And so she said, "Listen, we need money. We need you know this is so." And Jenny was six months old. I'm going to go back to work. And she had a great job at the at the uh, at NASA Community College. She was the assistant to the dean of theater to Wes. And I'm going to go back. They want me to come back. You'll take care of Jenny all day. I'll be home around five. She'll hand off, you know, her to me. Do whatever you have to do. Write nap whatever, and then go and become the comic that I know that you can be. Wow. So that was on my mind. Oh, God, we can do that. And then in the middle of feeding her, I get a call from a, a high school friend. He said, hey, um, listen, um, I'm hosting an, a ZBT event at NYU. There's a folk singer, and I need a comic. Do, do you know anybody who could do like 15 minutes? And I just went, I'll do it. <laughs> he goes, when did you start doing stand-up? Oh, no, no, I've been doing it for a while. Really, I'm lying my ass off. <laughs> But I had to, you know, I was having anxiety attacks. What am I doing? I'm 25 now. It's already late. And that was, that's the way I was thinking. But I'm not mm -hmm. doing what I needed to be doing for myself. Mm -hmm. And I said, I'll do it. So he said, oh, great. We just need 15 minutes and it's, it's Friday night. So good. I hung up and I said to, to Jenny, we're going into show business. And <laughs> I, I wrote a bunch of stuff and, 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 and adapted some things that I was doing with the group where there were more solo pieces for myself. And I, I drive in in a pouring rainstorm. And who walks in to see me but the managers who were now interested in the group. They had been interested in the group. And they had come to me and said, listen, there was a great guy named Buddy Moore. Uh, who was part of the, the Jack Rollins, Charlie Joffe management group that, that were the best in, in, in New York at the time. Woody Allen, uh, Dick Cavett, Robert Klein, who was the giant of all stand-ups at that time. And they said to me, listen, the group's not going anywhere, but if, if you ever thought about being a stand-up, we'd be there for you. So now I got this, my wonderful wife saying, I believe in you, and I got these guys saying, we're there for you. So I told them about I was going to do this fraternity party, and God, I couldn't. They showed up, and there's Jack Rollins, who was the man who put Nichols and May together. This is a guy who created Harry Bal Harry Belafonte's Calypso character. I mean, he was a legendary eccentric man. And I was about to do 15 minutes. They are about to go on, and I'm, I feel my life's changing. And my friend. Ira comes up to me who called me and said, the folk singer's stuck in traffic in this terrible rain. Can you stretch? Mm 
I said, stretch. So you mean from the four minutes I think I have to like, how long? He said, just go, just go. And then if he doesn't show, we'll take a break and um, and you'll go on again. Again? I don't have it. So I go up and for whatever reason, it just clicked. And I just, I had these notes and I did what I was going to do. And then I just went off. And I felt the four years I was with the guys just, melted away and I could feel myself really just like, you know, emerging. And I'd, I was so comfortable. It was back in the living room with the relatives and just, I was free and I just went and went and went. I did an hour. And when I was finished, uh, I couldn't, I just didn't know what to do. I just didn't know what to do. And I came up and I, and, and, and Buddy and Jack said, all right, the act stinks, but there's something there. So let's uh, <laughs> let's meet on Monday. And I was I I had to tell my guys, this is what I've done. And I felt like I had cheated on them, but I had a, I said I have to find out who I am. And we've I've I love you guys, but the, I just but this is my life now. I got to do this, and then they were fine. With you know it was tough, but they understood um, because we were friends. And then I, uh, I never looked back. And so I started doing it. And this is the most amazing story, I think, is what you're, mm -hmm. you know, I'm anticipating your question, Scott, about, <laughs> uh, um, about the best advice I was ever given. So now I'm at Catch. And I'm there every night. And I would leave where I was living, which was an hour outside New York. At around nine, hope to get in and get a parking space by ten, ten thirty. Hope to be on by one thirty or two. Then home, and then up at six with Jenny as Janice went to had to be at school by seven thirty. So that was what I was doing. So I put together very quickly a, a, a pretty solid twenty minutes that was very effective. There was a couple of what, you know, called toys and games. There was Ali imitation and Cosella and Ali became a little thing for me and some other bits and, and so on and so forth. But they were bits, but I was scoring heavily. So now I'm told by Buddy that Jack wants to finally see me. He didn't see me for the first four or five months of what I was doing. He didn't want to see it till he thought I was ready. And I said, I'm ready. So the great Jack comes and I destroy, I destroy we go out afterwards, I'm sitting opposite him, a very eccentric guy. He had like Duke Ellington's eyes. He had these big bags under his eyes and so much dandruff on his shoulders. And always with a little bit of a cigar. He, he felt like a, an eccentric English professor, you know, from like <laughs> Brooklyn College or something. And he's sitting opposite me and we order. Now he says, okay, so uh, Bill, uh, how did you think you did tonight? How'd you feel? I said, I felt great, Jack. I it, it, it was exciting. It's been going like this, and I felt really good. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Now I could feel he's about to say something I didn't want to hear. <laughs> well, honestly, I didn't care for it. Now I'm thinking if I pick up the knife quickly, I could just stab <laughs> him four or five times and be gone. Right. And, and he said, but let, let me tell you why. The audience loved it. It's very effective. But you know something? Listen to what I'm saying. I, you never once in the 20 minutes said, I. You never said, you know what bothers me? You never said, I think. You never said, I feel. You never said, you know what I would do? 
You never, you didn't put yourself in your own act. In other words, he said, think of it this way. You didn't leave a tip. And I said, <laughs> what do you mean? That, a, a tip, the little extra something on the table that you leave, that you, they, they remember you by. That little extra something. You didn't leave a tip. Put yourself in your own act. You're a young husband, yes? Talk about that. You're a young father. Gotta be stuff about that. Talk about that. Come in tomorrow. Don't do any of these things. We know these things can work and they will serve you well. But I'm more interested in who you are. You didn't leave a tip. So come in tomorrow and, and be prepared to bomb. And that was the best advice I've ever been given. And the next night I didn't do any of this stuff. And I, and I started thinking on my feet. And, and that's, I think, my approach really changed then and got more personal and more interesting. And even if it was less funny, funny, it was it, it came from the right place. And and that's and that's why uh, to this day I always I always talk about that to young comics who ask me. Oh, no, it's fascinating. And you know what else I think is interesting is that it really does connect with the most recent project that we're gonna come to here, uh, standing up, falling down, because essentially the issue now you had a wife and kids, you had somewhat your act more together than the guy, the younger guy in this movie. But what your character in Standing Up, Falling Down says to him is essentially, for for all intents and purposes, leave a tip. You're not talking about yourself in your act. You're going up and doing jokes and things. Um, so I just wonder, was that a contribution of yours or was that just a coincidence? No, that was a definite contribution of mine and talking, uh, and a young actor who's a wonderful actor and a, and a fantastic friend now, um, and a great talent, Ben Schwartz. You know, when we were working with Peter Hoare, who wrote the screenplay and, and, uh, Matt Ratner, who's a first time director, did a fantastic job. I said, you know, I can't talk about his standup and the way that originally was written because it'll look like like Billy is doing it, mm -hmm. but if I if I if I put it in in the character's name is Marty, he had no last name. That's how small the budget was on this picture. <laughs> that if I talk about that as a as a human being, the guys who meant things to him are the ones who just always you know the ones that are more interesting and the ones who just talk about their lives. I I told them this story, mm -hmm. and in that scene. It, it filtered down into those words. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Jack is always um, very much on my mind whenever I, you know, think about things I've accomplished or anything in those early days and the fact that all of them, Buddy, and, and but particularly, you know, those, they were so great, Charlie Jaffe, and that anything that they predicted when I was this raw, little full of himself guy at times, um, scared to death at times has happened and you need someone to believe in you. And, and I've had that, uh, of course, with Janice, but professionally also th those Jack and, and Charlie and Buddy and, and now David Steinberg for 40 years. When yeah. people believe in you, it makes it a lot easier. Well, I think, you know, they may factor into another moment in your career then that could have the way it went, it could have crushed you in a sense and, you know, just uh, and maybe for a while it did. But 
one of the people who I guess comes and sees you at doing stand up at, at a certain point there is Lauren Michaels, right? Who's putting together what ends up being Saturday Night Live. And you were supposed to be on the first ever episode, and yet you were not because of things that I'll leave it to you, if, you know, to kind of explain. But essentially, yes, eight years later, you're then a guest host. Then I think total of 10 years later is when you actually joined the cast. I think this was now the Dick Ebersol era. Lauren was gone. And this is where, you know, a lot of people really first on a national level maybe discovered you with the Fernando Lamas and all of that. But this all very nearly went totally awry at that you know, at the beginning, right? Yeah, and the first show. I'm gonna sep- I'm gonna I'm gonna get a prop. I'm gonna get. A- I know, <laughs> folks, this is a podcast, but I gotta ch- I gotta show them this. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. While at Catch, this young cool guy, first guy I ever saw wearing a, a sport jacket and jeans, and Hawaiian shirts a lot, <laughs> um, was Lorne Michaels, and he couldn't have been more interesting and and charming and so on. And then was talking about this show, uh, Saturday Night, and there was great interest in, in Marty Mull also to be the, the, the band leader and, and all kinds of um, fascinating approach to the fact that regular programming would be done and at 11.30 the kids would take over the network. That was sort of the idea. And they came to see me several times. I was then playing at the bitter end um, downtown, and Marvin Antonowski was the head of the network, came, and Lauren, and it was the night that Chevy ran out into the street and fell into the big puddle, and that's when Lauren put him in the show. It was that it was outside. He, he was a writer then. He wanted. He thought he could be a performer, and, he, and so it was pouring rain, and, and Gilda was there, and, and, um, and Lorraine, and, and um, Dave Tebbett, and all of these big deals, and that sort of clinched I would be on the premiere show. So we come to October 11th, 1975, and there were three comedy discoveries um, that they called them. Andy Kaufman, myself, and a comedian from uh, Canada named Valerie Bromfield. And when I came to the first rehearsal, I saw that my piece was on at five to one in the morning. You know, five to one, I went, oh, this doesn't feel right, you know. So I was nervous about that. We do a we do a, a dress rehearsal on Friday night, full audience, and the piece I was doing just went great. The show that night had, that night had a rough, the sketches weren't particularly working well. There were two musical guests, Billy Preston and Janice Ian, and George Carlin, who was a giant and remained a giant forever. And come, so I called everybody and said, I'm a little nervous about this. I'm on very late. Thing could change. And, um, but then we do notes after the show, and my thing really just did great that Friday night. And then at the, at the notes afterwards, Lauren said, um, Billy, I need two minutes. I said, um, take two minutes out of the thing? He said, no, I need two minutes total. And and honestly, I I didn't have anything else. I was only like five months into my stand-up world. I had nothing else to do, and this piece did so great. So I was like, what do I have? I don't have any. So now we come to Saturday, and 
everybody shows up that manages to talk with Lauren and, and to, you know, Lauren was under incredible uh, pressure. He's the premiere of the show, um, uh, of his show. You know, all the, what to make work, what not to make work. This didn't work, that didn't work, so on and so forth. And they were going back and forth and we tried to get, all right, he can do it in five minutes, but can it be in the first hour? We kept going back and forth. And I was just, I was not part of any of that. They were just with Lauren. And finally, after the dress rehearsal, Buddy and Jack come out and say, um, we're, we're done, we're going. You're, you're being bumped. We, can, we, we can't do it. And I went, what, what do you mean? You know, it's, it, it, you can't guarantee the time. You, you don't have anything else. And it'd be better, you know, don't, I know this means everything to you, so, but it's better for you, as hard as it's going to be, we're not on. And it was not my decision. I just, you know, they did this with Lauren, and so they worked. So what I'm about to show, Scott, this is a TV guide. Let's see, i got to move this. This is a TV guide ad. So it says, okay. NBC Saturday Night Live. This is a big one. Don't miss the exciting premiere of a new series, a whole new dimension for TV. It's live from New York, spotlight on the comedy music stars of today and tomorrow. So there's George Carlin, a film by Albert Brooks, Jim Henson and the Muppets, Janice Ian, Billy Preston, plus two bright new comedies, um, uh, Billy Crystal Plans, and Andy yeah. Kaufman. Can you see it? <laughs> Yeah, that's amazing. Wow. Next week, Paul Simon with special guest Artie Garfunkel. Yeah, so it didn't happen. And uh, I thought, that's it. Over. Done. That's where I, you know, that, and I, I had, they had all become friends and, you know, and, um, and I felt like this was, this was where I belonged and so on and so forth. And then when it didn't happen, it was really a personal um, setback because it was all like, you know, hey, he walked, Billy walked. I said, I, I, the managers and Lauren said, I can't do what I need to do for you, Lauren said. Mm -hmm. It's my show I got to protect. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, we got to protect our guy, so we're going to pull him. So that's really what happened. Well, and, and I don't know if it's directly a result of just feeling like, you know, you've got to essentially start over, but I think it was pretty soon after that you relocate to Los Angeles and essentially have your big unveiling at the comedy store, the equivalent kind of place out here to some of the big places where you'd been in New York. And I believe these same managers, at least in this, you know, in this instance, to slightly salvage the the situation, turn up a whole bunch of big wigs for your for your performance there. And it leads to like two or three of the next most important things that, that happened in your life. Can you just explain what happened on that night and who was there and, and just like what it led to? I was on the, yeah, I went out on the road opening for Melissa Manchester, who's a great singer. And um, so we were on a, really on a bus tour. And then so they, the guy set up this, uh, I just finished uh, in the boarding house in San Francisco, great place. And they set up this night at the, at the comedy store. And every, I, it's like everybody who you ever thought you wanted to work with or know or to say thank you to is in the audience. There's Jim Brooks, there's Norman Lear, um, there's Carl Reiner, there's, there's, uh, it's just insane. 
mm-hmm. it's just everybody and and it went really well and two weeks later I'm back in in uh, in New York and phone rings and I answered I'm actually you know I'm, I'm back to feeding my daughter and 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 uh, is this Billy Chris yes it is well hold on for Norman Lear I went okay <laughs> and he called me I'm saying hey dear we met at the uh, comedy said yes like we met you have to remember me the guy with a little beanie with a hat the hat and uh, I said yes Mr. Lear he said listen we have a part in uh, all in the family um, coming up uh, it's next week can you get out here I think you do very well in this you, you and Rob would be really good together I would, I'm sure I, yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, boom. He called me at home. <laughs> he, I mean, it was, so I fly out and, and um, I play Rob's best friend and all in a family. And it was, the, the show aired the week after the baby was born, the little Joey was born. So it was one of the highest rated shows um, that they ever had. And, and honestly, not one of their better shows, <laughs> but, but Rob and I, um, t- became instantly uh, best friends on the show. And we said, you know, we, we, this is, we're good together. Why don't we just keep that going? And yeah. so that's, that's one of the things. What are the other two? Well, I, so obviously, obviously Rob would uh, come around again. But the other thing I believe is that one of the other people in the audience that night was Michael Eisner, right? Yes. Yeah. And that led to a, um, like a development deal at ABC and then things are going pretty well. I've been in doing stuff and, and um, I'm playing, you know, concerts and so on and so forth. And I did my, like, first two, two Tonight Shows with Johnny, which went really well. And I, we get a call about, uh, from ABC, there's a show called Soap that they're doing. And they want to offer you a part. You don't have to read. It's yours if you want it. What is it? And I said, well, it's a nighttime soap opera. And um, it's an interesting show about two families, a rich family and a poorer family. It's a big cast. And and, and what do I play? An interesting guy. And um, he's a, he directs television commercials. He's very funny and he's charming and he's young and he's um, uh, gay. I went, oh, interesting. <laughs> Can I read right. it? Yeah, so I got sent that the the pilot was two uh, two shows, two half hours, and in the first one I have I basically have one line, um, that was it. But the second show I had this really good scene where he's at home, he's alone, he's in his mother's closet, and he's and he's dressing up, he's in her clothes, and my mother comes in and she starts berating him, Jody. Get out of my clothes. How many times I've told you not to wear my dress? Oh, you wear it belted. <laughs> and so, we're good. yeah, see, I think it just makes me, the, the lines move better. And, then, and so that was, and I thought that was a really funny scene. So then I said, all right, I'd love to meet with them. So it was someone who, I, there are very few real geniuses, geniuses, you know, and I think Susan Harris was one of them. Um, she wrote the first 60 something episodes all by herself for 14 main characters. I mean, just amazing, yeah. funny. And, and, and Tony Thomas and Paul Witt, uh, and Jay Sandridge, who was one of the great television directors was the director of the show. 
So I met with him. We talked about where is this going? This is 76 now. I was going to say this is the first gay character in primetime TV history. Yeah. would be, uh, on a, Yes. On a recurring uh, series. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And what, what, what's the Bible? Where is he going to go? What's he going to do? And, and, and so they made a lot of sense. And I thought, well, I could, you know, and I sat down and talked with the managers and said, well, listen, this seems confining. I'm just starting to start to really understand myself on stage. I'm still starting, you know, I'm just, you know, pretty, pretty regularly learning how to leave the tip now. And mm -hmm. it's getting better. Do I want to then step into, uh, you know, this show, even though it's unique and be a smaller part of something really good, but also maybe we do something that's important, you know, that, that if, if it's done right and written, written right, we could, you know, it could be important, this character, or do I not do it and just continue growing myself and, and doing what I'm doing and then see if it leads into something that might be for just, you know, myself, a vehicle you know, down the line. And I opted, I opted because I, I believed in them and I believed in what we could do with Jody. And, and so that was, that was that. Well, and it, you know, in, in the grand scheme of history, it's been named one of the 100 best written TV shows ever by the WGA. It's uh, your character again was sort of a trailblazer. And yet when someone in a previous interview asked you, you know, in hindsight, was it the right move, you said, quote, I would have said no to soap and continue to develop my stand-up, close quote, if you could go back and do it again. Is there, it, take us into the thought process, because on one hand, it certainly did bring you again in the way that, that SNL later would. It, 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 this was the first thing that really brought you to a national audience. Yeah, and, and, I, and I loved my years there. Um, that quote was in, you know, retrospect of what I, you know, later developed into, and that may have happened quicker if I had continued doing what I was doing because it did get, you know, the stand-up did get put on hold for a while uh, until I did my first HBO special in 79. So that was, that's, you know, was the thinking then. I, I, I think it, growth as a, as a stand-up, um, I would have, that's how I, f you know, think about mm -hmm. that. I learned a tremendous amount about, acting and professionalism from that cast. Robert mm -hmm. Guillaume, yeah. Richard Mulligan, Catherine Damon, Catherine Hellman, all gone now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Bob Mandan. They were so supportive. And and Jay Sandridge, who I, I, I just love, and, and great producers and Tony and Paul and Susan. There was a lot of great growth, and I got to play a lot of great things. But in, in talking just about the craft of stand-up, if I, I think maybe that would have been, you know, if I had stayed with it, it would have been maybe an easier path. So at that point begins the, I guess, after that, pretty soon after that, is not only SNL for you with 80, starting in 85, but right before that, your first, I believe, film collaboration with Rob, who was now getting into directing with this is Spinal Tap, a small part of Morty the Mime. Then uh, shortly after that in 87, uh, Miracle Max and the Princess Bride, another 
smaller part, but very memorable. Have fun storming the castle and all of that. And then, obviously, the one that that cemented things for everyone involved uh, when Harry met Sally, which I had the fun of going to the thing where you guys were all together about a year ago at at the Chinese theater. And it still is as great as ever, you know, 30 years, 31 years later. I just think it's interesting, though, to note, because it was such a turning point for, I think, everyone involved. First of all, it took Rob a while to figure out that he should come to you for this. But once he did, you're, it's, it's at that point, I believe, called Boy Meets Girl. Meg Ryan is somebody who... I guess she'd done Top Gun, but basically she'd even auditioned and not gotten the part opposite you with Throw Mama from the Train shortly before. She had auditioned, yeah. So now um, talk about, because I think it does seem like even though credits are are not necessarily reflective of this on the film, everybody was essentially a writer on that for, for all uh, in terms of you and Megan. And I mean, maybe the best case in point, if you're willing to kind of just break it down would be the the famous orgasm scene with what is maybe the greatest topper ever in a movie which you are responsible for so just to show how you weren't there just as a as a hired gun to be an actor you know what can you talk about that sure that was the amazing process of that film when i when i was cast before meg was cast and we saw some great really great people there was people that definitely would have been that's the person and and Rob and Nora were at every uh, every audition, and then um, this will sound like one of those '40s movies. And then she walked in, <laughs> and it was Meg. And um, we were in Rob's office over at Castle Rock, and she just—I don't know—I looked at her. She looked at me. We giggled, something, and then we and I just looked at Rob, and he just he just went, "Wow!" You could feel it right there. And they just let us play, you know, just fooling around, just talking. And before we read anything, and then that was really the basis of how Rob approached the work from the beginning was conversations. We had a lot of conversations about men and women. We had, and that's where all of that stuff came from. A lot of that was there beforehand with, with Rob and Nora about, you know, men and women can't be really friends because the sex thing always gets in, in, the, in the way. And, and then we were talking about uh, faking orgasms. Nora mentioned it, and, and one of the other producers, Andy Scheinman, mentioned it. Well, you know, the phenomenon of women faking orgasms. And Rob went, wait a second. No one has faked one with me. I guarantee you that. <laughs> And she goes, how do you know? She says, because I know. And so now already you can hear this dialogue ended up in the, in the scene. So mm-hmm. Meg says, I should have an orgasm. And I went, now? She said, no. <laughs> I said, yes, you should. Oh, that'd be hilarious. You do one in like a public place. It should be like in a restaurant, a crowded restaurant. And everyone watches you do it. And now we're all laughing hysterically. And she said, yeah, I'll go crazy. And I said, then we'll cut to an older woman and she'll say, I'll have what she's having. And that's how it happened. And, <laughs> and, um, and the, 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 the kicker of it is that that woman is Rob's mom. Yes. Who says, I'll have what she's having. <laughs> so when we come to shoot the scene at Katz's Deli, and Meg was very nervous that day. She came to my trailer early in the morning and on the Lower East Side and said, I, I don't know, I don't know if I'm gonna be good with that. I said, just relax and just just 
do it. Just go bigger than you even think you have to go. You know, just Rob will be there. He'll pull you back. If Whatever. Just have fun. I'm there. I'm with you 100%. So we go in now. There's extras. There's, there's atmosphere. There's, you know, 50, 60, maybe more people filling up the deli. All the funny characters that Rob perfectly placed where he knew he would do his cutaways. And we do a rehearsal. They have no idea what the scene's going to be about. And her first orgasm, first orgasm was a little tepid. It was like, <laughs> mm, it's okay. It was like, you know, we're married 12 years. It's one of, like one of those, you know. And, <laughs> and, then, and then she said, another one's not so good. So Rob says, wait, 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 wait Meg, I need, I need, this is what I need. This is what I need. And now he, he asked her to step out. It's feeling a little awkward. He sits down opposite me, and it looks like I'm on a date with uh, Dan Haggerty. And <laughs> and she's she's watching, and Rob proceeds to have an orgasm that King Kong would be jealous of. <laughs> He's pounding the table. There's pickles flying all off the out of the little thing that, and 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 then he just finishes, and everybody applauds. And he goes, that's what I, that's what I need. And she's like, okay, I got it. And he, he pulls me aside and says, buddy, I, I, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have done that. I said, no, make it, make it okay. You didn't embarrass it. No, no, no. I just had an orgasm in front of my mother. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was, but you know, it, it, it was a real lesson. Dating all the way back when I did the All in a Family with him. Mm-hmm. That when we you had all of these great writers and there's Norman Lear there. And so it was it was Rob who, in rehearsals, was was saying, maybe you should say this or go, how about we cut that line? He was already directing. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and then, I mean, you know, we watched Spinal Tap together uh, not long ago. There was a reunion to raise money for uh, Pennsylvania Dems, the Democratic Party in, in, uh, in Pennsylvania. And, you know, they showed clips. And you remember how amazing that movie is. Mm-hmm. And that was his vision. And the great, you know, Chris and Harry and Mike was so phenomenal in it. But so was all the little characters, Paul Schaefer and and Morty the Mime. And Mime is money. Don't talk back. And there was all <laughs> of these uh, great people in it. Um, Fran Drescher and, and um, it just it's uh, Tony Hendra and, and just on and on. But you could see the director in him. So that process of making that movie, including... The principles, you know, it was basically the two of us. And of course, uh, you know, sadly now Bruno and Carrie both gone. But it was mm-hmm. basically two people talking, you know, throughout the whole movie. But it's such great dialogue. And, and he was so inclusive, as was Nora, in letting us put stuff into the script as we went. We kept, we grew with the characters. So let's just note that that movie obviously becomes a hit. Makes you a movie star. Norman Lear, in fact, I found a great quote at the time where he said, quote, Billy makes the first transition I've ever seen from a stand-up comedian to a leading man. We've seen stand-up comic to actor, but never stand-up comic to leading man, close quote. So in that moment is, I believe, when the Academy comes to you for the first time and says, hey, Billy, we, you know, first of all, let's also note this is a year, the year after the Snow White Rob Lowe debacle. We want you to ability to come in here having hosted the Grammys in the three prior years. Will you now host the Oscars? And I wondered if that was something you'd always wanted to do or was that something you had trepidation about agreeing to do the first time or just the mind. Take us into your mindset. Though. I was ready. I was ready. I love doing the Grammys. 
and we were very successful uh, in in doing them, and and um, the shows were good, and 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 so on and so forth. And I and I really liked it. I uh, had a good time. Plus, I was doing comic relief with Robin and Whoopi, so I was hosting out there a lot. But then I had a string of movies, so now I'm not just a stand up or, or a sketch guy. I'm now in you know Throw Mama from the Train was a was a hit. Um, Running Scared did very well. And now Harry and Sally is a major hit. So it felt, and I presented on the, the, the Rob Lowe, Snow White, hostless year. Before I was a presenter on it, and what I did went very well. And so it felt like, okay. And they, ca- they came to me. And um, I instantly said yes, because I thought, this is this is uh, this is a very cool thing. It felt like, yeah. and it, it needed something because the year before was so bad. And all I could think about was all of those nights growing up, watching Bob Hope on our black and white TV, imagining what the color must have looked like, and then going to having to go to sleep early because the show was so damn long. <laughs> and and then and then waking up in the morning and my mother rest her soul <laughs> writing down who won what and it was a, a <laughs> piece of paper in my cereal bowl you know and um uh, I never forget that the list of who won what that I missed you know and some nights on the show uh if there was a break or I, I was I had to sleep I go into the, the little bathroom we had and and I'd brush my teeth, but I would hold up the toothbrush and I'd make my speech. <laughs> I want to thank everybody. It was a great, what a great crew, what a script. And I just kept thanking people with my toothbrush. <laughs> so I'm, right before I'm going on for the very first show at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, um, I'm in my dressing room and right before I'm, I'm brushing my teeth, I looked at that toothbrush and I put it in the pocket of my tuxedo. Oh, that's great. That's and great. every time I hosted the show, I had a, 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 a toothbrush. Uh, not the one from when I was a kid, but a yeah, toothbrush yeah. <laughs> um, in that's my pocket fantastic. just to ground me. And I just want to, you know, quickly just remind listeners, many of them don't need reminding, but of the nine that you've hosted, which is more than anybody except Bob Hope, just some of the moments they should, you know, visualize here 91 you come out with the horse in essentially promotion of city slickers which was about to come out 92 i believe you were so sick that you almost weren't going to be able to go out and i'll i'll leave it to you to talk about that but it ends up essentially being maybe one of the best nights anyone's had hosting the show because again it, it's just the pieces this is jack palance who you've cast in or you know who you've encouraged to be in city slickers having liked him as a kid is now winning an oscar and does the one arm push-ups which sets up the rest of the night and it was i think that was the same night also as um hal roach hal roach in the audience silent (laughs) he started in silent movies 93 was the fourth in a row and then you stopped for a little bit and came back 97 98 was the most watched one ever tight to the year of titanic 57.25 million 2000 again 2004 again and then what i'm i feel fortunate about is i only started getting to be in the room for covering it 
uh, in 2012. I've done it ever since, but that was your most recent time hosting. So my first experience was my last at the Oscars was your last. Yeah. Well, I loved my time there. And, you know, there's a great responsibility that came with it uh, about being in moving the show, being funny and doing it the right way. I think, and in, 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 in that's why I had great producers. Gil Cates and I had a great camaraderie and we were a really good team. And when we would, uh, Gil did six of, six of the shows. And what, what we decided to do was look at the rundown. Once we had the nominees and I'd see, well, I should be there. I could be there because he might say something. She might say something. So I should follow that. Can we not go to commercial there? Do we have to go? May I should be there. That Or I should come out of commercial there. The show should always look like it was hosted and give me the opportunity to comment on something that happened. So the show has a, a, a sense of spontaneity and, and gives me a, a chance at, at commenting, which I think is part of the great thing about having a host. And so that was, that's, you know, it was very carefully laid out. It was almost like a playbook, um, like a football team. And we'd write options. If he wins, I could say this. If she wins, I could say that. If, 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 the, if there's an upset, I could maybe say that. So we, you know, there were lines that I, that, that I could draw on or hopefully come up, you know, with whatever happens, happens. Well, that's the amazing is, I guess it comes back to your history with improv, but the, some of the most remembered things, whether it's Palance or Hal Roach or a number of others were had to have been improvised. Yeah, yeah. Because that's why you need a host, I, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, yeah. you know, those the accidents are the things that people love and that, you know, um, if you have the stand-up mind, you hope that something happens that you can capitalize on and that it happens. It, I actually happened to, someone tweeted the Hal Roach moment today that was me. It was that you? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I watched it this morning. I actually woke up to it. Oh, I, I didn't. I'm sorry. I didn't recognize. And I watched it. And I went, oh, yeah. And I remember again a connection to Rob. After the uh, for the people listening, uh, Mr. Roach was a hundred years old. He's he the Hal Roach Studios was alongside Max Sennett Studios and Chaplin, and they were the they really began uh, comedy and film. Laurel and Hardy, he invented the two realer comedies, our gang comedies, on and on and on. And he turned 100 years old, and I introduced him in the audience, and he was just supposed to wave. He was not to, supposed to speak. And so I introduced him, and I gave him a long standing ovation, and then he, he starts talking. And he keeps talking, and he has no mic, and he's in the second or third row. And this little hundred-year-old man is standing up, and he sounds like, "I want to, you know, thank everybody, you know, you know Laurel and Babe and Stan, so amazing people, and they, you know, got started up in Inspiration, you know, and we would ride up and down Colton by the hotel, and then, but you know, Stan and Babe was so good." And we couldn't even hear as well as what I'm hearing you say. Yeah, you couldn't yeah. nothing. And I'm looking yeah. at him, and I got a billion people watching me. <laughs> And I'm, I remember looking out at Warren Beatty, who who looks at me and basically mouths, "Say something." <laughs> and and so I looked at him and I said to the audience, "It's it's uh, it's only fitting he got a start in silent films," and it got a <laughs> huge reaction. And then at the end of it, this goes right back to Rob. 
<laughs> I said, split-fingered fastball on the outside. Yes, split exactly. fin- I went to the split-fingered. That was for Rob at home because I knew who was watching. And we would always talk about if a joke was good, you know, that's a triple. Uh, double, right. clean double. <laughs> I went to the split-fingered. So. And that, by the way, was so just so people know that for you to have that, you know, to be on your game that much on that night, the same night with all the pellets, uh, you know, just jumped off the Hollywood sign, just fathered all these kids. I had blah, pneumonia. All the different. I had, yeah, so tell them. I had a, yeah. about 103 and a half uh, fever, and I was sick as a dog. I even heard it when we would, you know, when I watched the, the, the tweet this morning. Oh, yeah. I was so sick. And uh, matter of fact, during the middle of that show, um, they had somebody backstage who gave me, you know, we did an IV with, with um, uh, whatever stuff that they gave me just to keep liquids, just to keep me going. Mm-hmm. Um, Is it true you had essentially lined up Tom Hanks in case you couldn't do it? Gil had called Tom to say, um, you know, maybe stand by. We don't know what's going to happen. Would you think about it? I mean, there was that and uh, massive antibiotics, Janice's chicken soup, and I pulled it together. And mm-hmm. and then, you know, the the first movie I ever saw in my life was Shane, mm-hmm. and and Jack Palance's scary Wilson in Shane, prove it, and <laughs> and I loved it because I wanted to be Brandon DeWilder, the kid from Shane, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so badly, and and so now when we're writing it, Lowell Gans and Babalu Mandela, who are my dear friends and genius guys. Um, we're writing in each, we all take turns being Jack in the writing sessions, you know. Writing city slickers. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so now Ron Underwood comes on. He's going to be great director for us. And I said, we, I, we want Jack Palance. So we get it to him. We arrange a meeting at the Bel Air Hotel in the bar. And Ron, who is a very, um, he, he looks like a puppeteer. He, he's just a sweet guy and a very shy guy, a diminutive guy. And the t- two of us together are not as big as Jack. And Jack walks in and he's got that, he's got that big head, you know, like movie stars have, the big head theory. He's got it. <laughs> and he starts talking about, I really like this script a great deal. <laughs> and it's like scary. And then um, he ends up doing it. And so now we were shooting five weeks before he came on the set and everyone was waiting for the, uh, the big cat to arrive as he was with the big cat comes, you know, and then he has one day with us and then he, the, basically everything shut down. So Jack and I could do all our scenes together. He's only in the movie 12 minutes and all our scenes pretty much are together. And it was on the other night, and I haven't watched it in forever, and it was on HBO. And Jazz and I watched it, and we, it, it's, it really holds up. But I look at my moments with him as so beautiful, how good he was, and, and the balance between the two of us was so good. So I just loved him. I just loved him. And so That's great. He, he, um, we're at the Golden Globes. We're both nominated. Mm-hmm. I'm up for best actor in a comedy. He's up, he's up for best supporting actor. His award comes up first. He wins. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, my God, 
he's going to win the Oscar. He's going to win mm-hmm. an Oscar. It's mm-hmm. his time. Mm-hmm. And he makes a speech, and then he comes right back down. He sits next to me. I said, Jack, you're supposed to go to the, you're supposed to go to the press room. Look, they're waving <laughs> at you. And he goes, pardon my language, fuck them. <laughs> he says, I want to be here when you win. I want to uh, be sitting here when you win. My award comes up. I lose to Morgan Freeman. <laughs> Jack gets up, and I go, where are you going? The press room. You lost. <laughs> <laughs> so now we come to the show, and he wins. And, and Whoopi actually gave him the award, announced the award, mm-hmm. and he comes up. He says a couple of, I don't know, some bad little d- d- things that he mumbles. And then he talks about being older. I don't think you can do this. And he hits the ground. He does these three one-arm push-ups. And then, and then leaves and set us up for, you know, a running series of jokes throughout the rest of the night. Jack just jumped, uh, uh, Bungie jumped off the Hollywood sign. This just in, Jack Palance just won the New York State primary. Then there was a scene, uh, a song from Hook, and there were like 40 little children on, on stage singing. And I followed it out. And I, I said, you know, Jack Palance is the father of all of these children. <laughs> and we went on and on and on. And, and, and then, then came the Hal Roach moment. And then, you know, suddenly I'm getting an IV. And um, Crazy. It, it was a wild night. It was just a wild yeah. night. And I, I was so loopy at one point. I suppose I think I was introducing Liza Minnelli. <laughs> and that's not why I was loopy. And I'm, right. and I, and I just I just I couldn't get my words out. I was just like, and I just I just said, <laughs> didn't inhale. Because <laughs> Clinton had said, yeah, I smoked, right. but I didn't inhale, and right, it got a right. huge huge reaction. And so it was one of those nights. It was just one of Amazing. those really good nights. So I know we're coming up against the clock, and I hope I can ask you if it's all right. Just three more, and then I'll get out of your way here. But. Uh, First, I, I think that people should know that, you know, Rob's not the only guy who acted and then got into directing. And uh, you did it with Mr. Saturday Night playing the aging comic who refuses to retire, sort of a Borscht Belty guy, but also co-writing it with the City Slickers guys a year after City Slickers, producing it, acting in it and directing it. And it just seems like it was really a, a passion project for you. And, you know, unlike these two hits that you were coming off of with with both playing Harry and Mitch, this is not a guy that's easy to warm up to. And the movie was not as widely embraced. And yet I think for you, you know, it 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 did receive acclaim from people who know what they're talking about. And David Paymer got his Oscar nomination for playing your brother. But what was the takeaway of that one just of in terms of, you know, what you felt I think was even better than those two hits? This is just the, the business yeah. that we're in. It was, yeah. it was really a labor of, of intense love. We, I love this character, Buddy Young Jr., and um, he in the movie was like 75 for a lot of it. A lot of flashbacks to his rise of his career and his relationship with his brother, uh, who became his manager, who David played. And I was writing the draft while we were shooting City Slickers, and David, of course, is in City Slickers, and I kept hanging out with him and thinking, this could be like him. It could be like him. So it was like tailoring it for him. And then I told Gans and Mandel about it. They read my draft, and then we said, let's finish this up together. And I wanted to direct it, and and uh, I am so proud of that film. The degree of difficulty in it was so great 
because, yes, coming off two very likable big hits, um, actually, if you throw Throw Mama, there was like a good run of three really funny, right. good movies. And to play a, a rude, edgy, older guy in makeup when, you know, this is uh, 1991. So, you know, makeup's as we did a really good job, but now it's so much it's so much better. But, you know, so it was good. It was really good. But, you know, it was so hard. 72 day shoot, 53 days as the old guy, which meant 2 a.m. makeup calls, five hours in the chair, uh, uh, adjustments all during the day because of the lighting, the way it hits that stuff. And Don Peterman, who was a phenomenal DP, did a great job. And it's a, and, and um, then it takes an hour and a half to get out of it. And then you go back to the next day and do it. I mean, it was it was extraordinarily difficult, but I loved every second of it, and was and couldn't have been proud of the movie. And and um, but when it didn't open, it was stunning, and it, it's it's like whoa, that they didn't want to see that, and they you know you go can I can't you can you not stretch? Do you have to be Mitch, you know, from City Slickers? Do you have to be Harry all the time? I didn't. And, you know, so it, it was a very ambitious film. Uh, it, was a, it was a little hard to recover emotionally from it because it was so exhausting to do, and I so poured myself into it. And to handle all of that it, with responsibility. Um, but you learn, all right, it's, it's now on to the next one. Hopefully there is right. a next one, and so on and so forth. Yeah. But so, you know... Um, uh, and now we're developing that into a, a Broadway musical. And, oh, wow. and so uh, hopefully, um, you know, we would have opened already. Mm-hmm. Um, we're supposed to open November 4th. And it's, so it's, I think it's, it's, it's quite a good version of it. It's now it's dark and, and, and very funny and moody and a, and um, a great score by Jason Robert Brown. So the, the, the story is not uh, over for that. No, for that project. no. There's That's a little. Great. There's a. There's a. I felt like I had unfinished business. So we'll see. Yeah. We'll see what happens with that. And and yeah. So but you know you 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 learn to. It's not pleasant, but you learn to ride with it and and take what was good out of it, which was the experience. Mm-hmm. There was some good fringe benefits of it. Uh, David and I were both nominated for Golden Globes. He of course was nominated for the Oscar. And it's over the years has has gotten a great deal of respect from filmmakers and and people start to find it as they start to say what else did he you know I didn't know that mm-hmm. one I didn't see that one I didn't want to right. see it and you know it was it was always hard to make a trailer for it where you couldn't hide the the face the thing you know mm-hmm. you couldn't I mean and you know Bette Midler who I adore had done for the boys. And that was also old age makeup, and that didn't work for her the way she wanted it to. And it's, there's something about that, people. I just want to see you the way you are. Don't rush it. Don't get old on me. So the the next one uh, of these, the number two of three, is that you then had a kind of late '90s turn of the century. Let's just say late '90s, beginning 2000s, almost like uh, rebirth in a sense between the analyze this and that movies, which were huge hits with people who probably some, a lot of them maybe weren't even around fully for some of the earlier hits that we've talked about. Then there's 
Monsters Inc., which was again certainly a whole new generation of people getting to, you know, maybe you know get a, become aware of you. Which I I was amused to read that that was sort of maybe partly appealing because you had very regrettably passed on Toy Story doing Buzz Lightyear. Uh, so just that that whole thing of of reaching a new audience through those projects and and kind of uh, you know not many people have multi decade careers like that. So just uh, that moment, if we can talk about. Well, to analyze this was a, a, a joy to do. And I felt, you know, really great acting in that um, with with the legally, I'm supposed to call him Mr. De Niro in public. <laughs> um, but Bob and I had such a great um, rapport with each other and playing off him was a real lesson in, in acting and I, you know, playing a psychiatrist, somebody who listens uh, for a living, um, really stood me well in in listening to him and being able to respond and and not to respond, and because he keeps doing different things on you know in different takes with the the great Harold Ramis is directing, we just encouraged go do it, you know, and so I would stay with him and 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 that was a real. Uh, Wonderful experience, and and I and I really love, particularly the first movie, the relationship of that, and 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 um, playing off him and with him was really thrilling. And Monsters Inc. was yes, I was the schmuck who turned down Toy Story. <laughs> um, uh, I wasn't sure about it at the time, uh, what it was going to become. It was it was at a meeting, and and John Lasseter brought up these the dolls out and so on. And I, I don't, there was a dispute then that Robin was having with Disney about Aladdin and money. And so it just, and my managers said, mm, I don't know. I don't know. So reluctantly I said, no, and re regret that to this day, except <laughs> uh, right. a couple of years later, I'm in my office. At, now I'm, you know, at Castle Rock and John Lasseter calls me and says, um, uh, hey, it's John Lasseter. And I just said, yes, whatever it is, yes. <laughs> he says, no, I'm, I just seriously want to talk to you. I said, no, you didn't hear me. Yes. <laughs> and it could have been a fundraiser, you know. Right, right, right. So he said, listen, I want to talk to you. I, I, we, have this, we have this thing. I just think it's a beautiful film, and I think you'd be. this is a great part for you. Can I come over and talk to you? I said, Absolutely. When do you want to do it? And he says, well, I'm actually outside. <laughs> he was outside the office. He was in my lo the lobby of this building I was in. And he comes in and he has this little figurine of this little one eye with legs and arms. And I said, well, it's CBS walking. Look at this guy. <laughs> and, I said, and, and he said, well, his name is Mike Wazowski. And, it's, and he tells me the whole thing. And I was enraptured with it. You know, I was the guy who thought there was something under the bed. I was the guy <laughs> who just put, you know, kept my bedroom door open just a little bit so the light from the hallway would come in. Mm -hmm. So I was the, and I just thought it was a genius idea. And the team with John Goodman um, was a dream. And so we come to the first day of recording and John's not there. And they play back John's lines. And I said, wait, wait, wait where's John? Well, why? And they said, well, no, John does his lines, and then you come in. We we always do it this way. I said, oh, no, I can't. Can't we be together? 
Because we'll, I know we'll find new things. We're supposed to be roommates. We'll be best friends. Because then if he does his thing, then I'm sort of, I'm sort of hemmed in. And I can't go someplace else because he won't have a reaction to it. And they went, hmm, all right. So they called him and he goes, of course I'd love to do that. Sorry, John. <laughs> and so then he comes in and we did everything together. And I love that's him great. dearly. And, and, and I think that's why that relationship is so good because it was real. And now we're doing a series. You know, we're doing a series called um, Monsters at Work um, for Disney+. Plus. For, and, for Disney+. Plus. Yeah. Oh, it's great. It's so good. John and I are in it. It starts six months after the first movie ended. So now Mike okay. and Sully are working on now was the laugh floor. And I've got a whole bunch of new characters and new storylines. And, and we're there. And, and the, the animation is 20 years better. And, and it was great then. And and we're having a lot of fun. Awesome. Well, here's where we come to what I I saw it this week. I think it's as good as anything you've done as an actor, and that is this character that we briefly referenced earlier, this dermatologist with a drinking problem who has a lot of regrets and sort of winds up against all odds with a surrogate son in a way, played by Ben Schwartz, who is 34 years old, the character wannabe stand up who's just bombed out of LA and is back living with his parents in Long Island. And, you know, he's sort of got an absent father, a father who's not really emotionally there for him. You've got kids who don't want your character's got kids who don't want anything to do with him. And so there's this bond, which I guess in some ways sounds like it was there in real life because Ben really wanted and and was amazed you know he idolized you he said and lobbied for you to do it and i wonder what was it you know there aren't i'm sure there's zillions of independent filmmakers who would love to have billy crystal be in their movie what was it that sold you about doing this one i love the the um um, the character and i love the relationship between the two of them and it was different when i first got it and i and when matt ratner first-time director had produced a lot of these little movies, you know, the little under a million dollars, under whatever it is, and gets them done. But he he loved this thing, and I loved what it could be. And I gave him my initial thoughts about some changes that I thought would be better suited for me to play this character that I that thought character-wise would be good for this, this guy to play. Why is he drinking? There was no reason in the first script. Why is he drinking? Why is he smoking pot? What's he hiding? So we got to get into that. And he's got to talk about that. And the only one he could talk to about it is this kid. So if I'm going to do this, who would the kid be? So he gave me a, um, a tape of five different uh, people they were thinking about. They were all terrific. I was aware of Ben because I'd seen him on uh, Don Cheadle's The House of Lies. I thought he was great. And then there was a little movie he did with Tina Fey called This Is Where I Leave You, which he, where he plays a, a put-upon rabbi. And he was very funny. And he was a childhood friend of theirs who became a rabbi. And he was always the awkward one. And I thought he was really good. And then Parks and Rec, he's very funny. And I said to Matt, I'll do it if you get him. He's got the right chops to play it. Stand-up. The other guys are all terrific actors. They're not stand-ups. This guy's got that thing. And I know we'd be really good together. I just know it. 
So we said, oh, great. So they arranged a phone call. Ben was in Atlanta doing um, um, uh, night school, I think the name of it is, with, with the, uh, Kevin Hart and, and Tiffany Haddish, who I just finished working with, who's wonderful. And we hit it off on the phone. He's coming back to L.A. in a couple of days. He comes over. Um, we hung out for like two or three hours. And we just, it was like what happened with Meg. We just sort of knew we just fell into each other in the natural um, way that the characters do. And so, and he's really smart and he's a very good writer himself and a great improviser. And we went to work on the script with Matt and Peter Hoare, who wrote the screenplay. And that's, and, that's, and it was, it was, you know, it's very similar in a way, as, as I'm saying this to you, Scott. It's similar to the Jack Palance me relationship. I only worked nine days on the picture, but yet it's the, the, the most impactful scenes emotionally for both of us. And, and, you know, and he had great affection for me and grow, grew up watching my stuff and the way I did with Jack. And so Mary, maybe I, I didn't even think about that till now that there's That's that. Amazing. And, and, and the work in, in playing this guy was very real for me. And it was different than the, the other character I had played because, you know, I didn't write this. So I came to it with fresher, you know, I put a lot of stuff in it, but Peter would, would you know, do it and write it and execute it. And then I'd make it my own, you know, and, but it, it was that way. It was very freeing. He was, it was such an interesting, painful guy to play. And I just want to emphasize for, for listeners that, you know, they may hear, oh, it's a movie about a, a standup. They might assume that without really reading the log line, all right, so Billy's playing the standup and he's the comic relief. And no, you are playing, you know, your guy has some some very funny moments, but it's a it's a character who has to go to some dark places. He's, you know, got some very emotional scenes and it just feels like it's like you're in some ways exploring territory that maybe uh, is pre was previously unexplored for you as an actor. Yeah, I think but perhaps so, yeah. Um, especially, you know, honestly at this age, to, to play a guy who's covering up everything with booze and, and drugs, and then he has nobody to talk to because his kids don't want to have anything to do with him. So we find, that, you know, he stumbles into this, this young person um, who was a patient, and they start helping each other. And, you know, it's, it's, and they start, he starts in a way helping me to clean up. And I, in a way, encourage him to leave a tip. And, and I loved the rawness of it in, in exploring. And Ben was great and Matt was terrific with us. It was basically like, let me give them their space. Let them find, I'll know where to put the camera. And I don't know when to tell them things that I'd like this. How about that? But let them find each other. And that's, that was the, the, the key to it. And I'm so proud of, of um, the freedom, uh, the feeling of freedom I had. I'm very proud that it ended up in, in the work. And then, and then, you know, people are seeing it. And, uh, you know, one of my heroes, and it was, he was, I got to know him uh, a bit, was Jack Lemmon. And Mr. Lemon was uh, uh, an amazing actor and had the ability to be hysterically funny. 
but also had great pathos about him. Um, you know, from Mr. Roberts to Some Like It Hot. But then you see him older in, in um, Save the Tiger. Yeah, China Syndrome. And, yeah, and, yeah. And, and then he embraced who he was. And and I think that was like that for this guy for me, for Marty. I kept thinking of, mm-hmm. of him. And I hosted uh, an event at the Academy for the 50th anniversary of It's a Mad, 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 Mad mm-hmm. World. I remember you had them all there. Yeah. Winters and everybody. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and Mickey Rooney. Yeah. And, and it, was, it, was, it was Jonathan's last public appearance, um, Carl Reiner, uh, bless his soul, um, and other members, um, Barry Chase um, and, and Mickey Rooney. And Mickey uh, was a, also a big hero um, for me. Uh, any of us in the under five seven club, we stick together. <laughs> Mickey was way under five seven, yes. but what a giant! This is a, this guy is so underrated. Mm-hmm. You know his talent was extraordinary. He was the number one box office champion for seven years in a row. Then as he got older, you know, and he grew out of the Andy Hardy thing. Now he's an, an older guy. Um, he wins an Oscar, right, for Black Stallion. Playing an aging jockey, and and he's great in it, and he just was so good. So I, I talked to him about it, and he goes, "Well, you know, uh, parts like that you gotta wait for. Mm-hmm. You know, you gotta, you know, getting old ain't easy. But if you get a part like the, you know, the aging jockey, then it's a little easier." So he said, "So uh, you know, you'll see. You wait for some time. You'll get your aging jockey." <laughs> and and Marty for me was the aging jockey. That's great. Well. I really can't recommend it enough, and I can't thank you enough for doing this. It's been such a fun opportunity to kind of go back through a lot of memories as a viewer who's admired you, and then just uh, just a treat to get to speak to you. So I really appreciate it. Thank you, thank you, Scott. Really, yeah. uh, and thanks um, for getting a word out about this this uh, this little movie. Has been uh, you know really a fun experience getting one out there that people seem to like. It's a good feeling. Absolutely. All right. Well, you take care. Thanks again. Thanks. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.